Have you ever taken time to ponder what the Lord Jesus thinks about our church? The first three chapters of the book of Revelation should cause you to do just that. These admonitions were not just written to ancient congregations that no longer exist. They're written to us today. They reveal to us Jesus Christ as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is the eternal Son of God who was active in creation and is coming again to fully establish his eternal kingdom. Until that day arrives, he is active in his body, the church. He's walking in our midst, assessing our condition, knowing our character and our works. This is something that should be very sobering to us. In chapter 1, Jesus Christ is portrayed as the one who loved us and washed us from our sins, but he is also revealed there as a righteous judge, clothed in judicial garments with flaming eyes, burnished feet, and a voice more powerful than a roaring waterfall. And he is coming again to this earth to render just retribution upon his wicked enemies, but he also stands as judge among his own people. In the next two chapters of Revelation, we see him assessing seven churches that existed in John's day. These were real churches, but also representative churches of all ages. Every church is made up of individual members that give the church its personality and character. The character of any church is determined by its membership because the church is not so much a building as a people. So when Christ addressed these churches, he was addressing its members. He's speaking to you as a member of his body. That means we should ask ourselves some questions. Where is my church succeeding and where is it lacking? How am I making it what the Lord wants it to be or hindering it from what the Lord wants it to be? Am I supporting and promoting his church through commendable qualities or am I hindering the church through sinful characteristics that I won't deal with? So let's ask the Lord to assess us today as he did the church in Ephesus in the first century. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the last message of the Word of God that you've given to us in the book of Revelation. We're thankful, Lord, that you revealed yourself there as the Alpha and the Omega, the all-knowing one, the sovereign one who controls all things, the one who died for us and made eternal life possible for us, but, Lord, the one also who knows us inside and out even better than we know ourselves, the one who sees us for all that we are, and the one who is able to make us what we ought to be. And we just pray, Lord, that your spirit would speak to our hearts today as you assessed uh, the church in Ephesus. Uh, Help us to realize, Lord, you're assessing us today. Help us to be what we ought to be as a people and as a church as we look to your word this morning. 
We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we study Christ's messages to his churches, we find a pattern with only slight variation from church to church. He first addresses the angel of each church, then he communicates to that church an attribute about himself related to John's description back in chapter 1. Then he gives a word of commendation usually, and he cites a condemnation or something that needs to be corrected. He gives a warning to repent or to change. He admonishes the church to hear what is conveyed, and then he closes with a promise to overcomers. So let's take a look this morning at the first church, which is the church located in the ancient city of Ephesus. And first he writes in verse 1 to the angel of that particular church. The term angel means messenger, and in the book of Revelation, and usually in most other places, it alludes to a spiritual being that we normally think of as an angelic person. However, the word is also used to uh, one who is carrying a message or the message itself. So in this case, it may address the men selected to carry the message of revelation that John is writing to each of the seven churches, or it may refer to their spiritual leader. And so it would be addressed to them as the representative of each of the churches that are named. It seems unlikely that the Lord would send his message to an angel and then somehow have to convey that in another way to each of the churches. So I don't think he's alluding to a literal angel here. Although it's unusual, uh, I think he's referring to the men who are going to be the messengers that bear this to the churches. Now let's think about this city of Ephesus for a moment. Not long ago, we went through the book of Ephesians, and we did a study on this particular city. But let me remind you of a few things. First of all, this was the most populous city of that particular region, uh, probably about a quarter of a million people. That doesn't sound that large today, but back then it would have been quite large. It was also a very wealthy city because it was a port city, and a number of trade routes went through that city and, of course, from there to other parts of the world. It was most noted for its temple dedicated to Artemis or Diana, the Greco-Roman goddess of love. And it was one of the seven wonders of the world. People would flock to this city from all over to see this marvel and participate in the abominations of its worship. It was a very immoral city. As a matter of fact, uh, it was... Uh, like a modern sanctuary city today, where a criminal could actually go to this city under the guise of worshiping its false god and not have to worry about crimes that have been previously committed. Worship itself involved prostitution, fornication, and adultery. Heraclitus, a philosopher from Ephesus, said of its citizens, they are fit only to be drowned. He said he could never laugh or smile because he lived in the, in the midst of such uncleanness. 
But this city was first evangelized by the Apostle Paul, who ministered there for about three years. And later, Timothy was sent there. And then John, the author of uh, Revelation, became his pastor for a period of time. And from this debauched, idolatrous, worldly city, God raised up his church. And he continues to do so even today. Now, let's see what the Lord Jesus communicates about himself in the second verse. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And we might note here that the things he says are authoritative. That's what the meaning of the word say here is. That is a message that carries authority, especially based on a person from whom that message comes. So as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, uh, we, we grasp the idea that these people are under his authority. They're under his power. Whoever the messengers are, they're held fast in the hand of the Lord. No harm can come to them while they remain under his sovereign control unless he allows it. So this may well be a message of encouragement to pastors and teachers and Christian leaders of all ages. Then we're told that this person walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Going back to chapter 1, we know uh, this is being spoken of of Christ, the Alpha and the Omega. He is the one who's in the midst of his churches, knowing what's going on there. So he's ever-present with his people. When they meet to worship and serve him, well, he's there in their midst. He knows if they are faithful or faking. He knows if they're genuine or hypocritical. He's present with his people when they're scattered as well. He rules through his spirit. He is wherever the saints are. Christ is always with his people. And being present with his people, he knows all about them. He goes on to say in verse 2, I know your works. This verb, to know, means to know full and complete. In other words, have absolute knowledge of something, knowledge that only God can have, knowledge that uh, Christ has as we go through the book of Revelation. And the Lord Jesus knows the true condition of each member of his church. He looks beyond superficiality. He looks beyond hypocrisy. He looks beyond self-deceit. He sees every heart and he knows what is there. So that means he knows how we act wherever we are, what our attitudes are, what we may be trying to hide, how we treat other people. He knows if our good deeds are properly motivated. And if we would keep that truth in mind, that thought in mind, that the Lord Jesus is with us all the time, he knows exactly what we're doing, and might help us walk more closely with him. What then did the Alpha and Omega know about the church at Ephesus? What works is he assessing there? We find this in verse 2, 3, and then also verse 6. So the, the commendation of Christ 
uh, is significant. He finds a number of things about this church that he can praise. <clears throat> he says, I know your works, <clears throat> your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. <clears throat> so the first thing that he notes is that they were a productive church. They patiently labored for the uh, for the Lord. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> the verb labor here means to toil, to work hard, uh, even to the point of weariness or even exhaustion. They were willing to expend their time and their energy in the furtherance of the gospel. This labor was also characterized by patience, which alludes to patient endurance under trial or difficulty. In other words, they held up under difficult circumstances. <clears throat> so that means they remained steadfast in the face of any obstacles they might have faced in that ancient city. And this would include times of persecution, uh, dealing with false teachers, facing the constant bombardment of idolatry and its heinous practices. So there was a lot going on in that city, as in many cities today, <clears throat> that would be disheartening to God's people, but they don't give up, they don't quit, they keep on working, and uh, they do so with this uh, idea of, of patiently enduring uh, in the situations of life. So this particular church, the church at Ephesus, actually became a, uh, a central point where uh, evangelists could go out into other cities of that region and be supported by the church and start churches in those other cities. So they were a productive church. <clears throat> Secondly, we find in verse 2 that they were a pure church. I know that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. So they're doctrinally sound. They're doctrinally pure. <clears throat> Christ commended them for not bearing with those who are evil. In other words, putting up with them. Now that means they did not put up with sinful behavior within the church itself. This may refer to professing Christians who aren't living according to the scriptures. Timothy had to deal with this when he went to the church at Ephesus, as we've been studying in our Sunday school classes. And uh, they learned not to tolerate that which uh, means uh, that uh, that means that they must have uh, to deal with these things in a biblical fashion. And this attitude would also include their testing of those who claim to be apostles. Now, this would not mean they're claiming to be an original member of the 12 apostles that Jesus ordained, but there were men who went from place to place who were apostles. They were messengers. They were preachers of the gospel. They had the authority of Christ upon them. Paul was one of these. <clears throat> so they're claiming uh, to be true apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're claiming to uh, bear uh, his teachings, but some of them, although they claimed this, were not truly obeying the word of God and preaching its truth. 
Some of them had come to Ephesus and were going to other places in the region. And these people had enough sense, enough knowledge from what Paul originally gave to them later on, maybe Timothy, to begin to recognize these types of people, that their life was not measuring up to the gospel, and their preaching was an aberration of it. And so when they tried them, when they put them to the test, they found that they were liars, they were false. So they had enough information based on the word they were receiving from the real apostles to be able to detect that which was false, that which was not true, that which was um, uh, morally deficient as well as doctrinally. Now John mentions a specific group of such teachers down in verse 6 where he says that you have this, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So it's very clear that there are some things that the Lord hates. He hates false teaching, and uh, we are to hate false teaching as well. Now, we don't know exactly who this particular group was. There's not a lot of historical evidence. We don't find it uh, elsewhere in the Bible that much. And so we really kind of have to go back to the early church fathers who were closer to this situation and give us a little bit of information about it. Uh, It seems that from their writings that this group developed from Nicholas, who was one of the original men selected as a deacon in the mother church of Jerusalem in uh, Acts chapter 6. And eminent leaders such as Irenaeus and uh, Tertullian, Hippolytus, Jerome, Augustine, uh, they believe that uh, a strain of Gnosticism developed out of this that promoted licentious behavior. Others note that this was a heretical sect who who retained pagan practices like idolatry and immorality contrary to the thought and the conduct required in Christian churches. So they were an aberration of the truth. They were licentious, they were antinomian, and uh, from what we can gather, uh, what they were teaching was false, it should be rejected, and this is what the church did. They hated this kind of impurity in doctrine and life. And the Lord uh, commends them for their understanding of the truth and their application and separation from such things. Of course, in our day, there's even more rampant false teaching than in the first century. And one of the duties of pastors and Christian leaders in the church is to point out these aberrations and help the church recognize them and avoid them. But we also must be diligent to maintain uh, moral purity based upon the scriptures. We must be willing to deal with wrong behavior in our own lives uh, so that the local church is going to be above reproach in its community. So this idea of purity plays out in doctrine and in practice. Now the church in Ephesus was also a persevering church. Go back up to verse 3. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. 
So through it all, they have not become weary in well-doing. And one characteristic of the church involves the perseverance of its people. How many have passed through the doors of our own church over the years and not persevered? It takes faith. It takes endurance. It takes this laboring, this toiling to keep on keeping on in the face of life's pressures. And we don't become weary as we do that. We have to remember who it is that we're laboring for. The Lord Jesus reminds them that all this is done for my name's sake. There's really no point in doing anything for anybody else's name, including our own. It's because of Christ that we can endure, that we can persevere, no matter what might be happening in the world or even in our own personal lives. Ministry is not about us. It's about Christ and his gospel. Most of us have persevered in this church for many years. We've stuck it out through thick and thin. By the grace of God, we'll continue to do so until he comes or he takes us home. Now, all of these are good and commendable qualities that should characterize all Bible believers and their churches. But the Lord Jesus has a serious complaint concerning the church at Ephesus. He goes on to say in verse 4, Nevertheless, in spite of all these good deeds that you've done, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. The church at Ephesus was a productive church. It was a pure church. It was a uh, persevering church, but it was also a church that left its first love. When Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, he commended their love for all the saints. He founded this church some 40 years before John wrote the book of Revelation, and something has changed for the worse over that period of time. The second generation church was not as fervent in their devotion as the first generation. One commentator called it the church of loveless orthodoxy. The verb to leave here means to forsake, to let go, even to abandon. And somehow the church over the years had become cold in its operations. Maybe they were satisfied with the status quo of good doctrine and good works, going through the motions of what was expected of them. I think that sometimes it's easy for second or third generation believers to become this way. They've gone to church their whole lives. They've seen the example of good living promoted by the church. They may become active in service and do good works, but there's still some distant uh, uh, from a vibrant relationship with Christ. Their life is really not that much different from someone who grows up in a false religion an apostate church, or even a cult. They're doing 
what their Christian cultural environment has taught them to do, and there's really not a lot of emotion or devotion involved in that. So the church at Ephesus uh, was no longer motivated by the love they once had. And this love was supposed to be first, primary, the principal quality of relationship. The term first denotes rank, the idea of first place, the chief or main position. So their love for Christ was no longer preeminent in their lives. Other things had replaced it. Yes, they were busy, they were patient, they were concerned about doctrine and right living, but were they motivated from their affection to the Lord Jesus Christ? One commentator wrote, the love of first conversion had waxed cold and given place to a lifeless, formal orthodoxy. In our previous ministry, there was a fellow who often said this to me, I wish I was as fervent now as when I first got saved. And by the time we left that ministry, he had wandered off into the world. He lost his first love. So, what is it that motivates you today? Are you as fervent now as you have been in times past in your service to the Lord? What is it that keeps you going? Is it your devotion to Christ or just your duty to him? So let's then look at verse 5 where the Lord Jesus gives his correction. And we can always be thankful when Christ sees something that needs to change, he gives us what we need to change it. So how do we regain that which we have lost in our walk with him? Well, three thoughts here. The Lord goes on to say in verse 5, Remember. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. So the first step is thinking about our life. Remembering something involves your thought processes. And perhaps our memory is not as good as we would like it to be. But when it comes to spiritual things, we certainly ought to be uh, remembering from where we have fallen. That suggests to us a movement from one place to another, from a higher elevation to a lower one, from the mountaintop to the valley, if you will. And usually a fall into sin or waywardness or a lack of devotion starts someplace. So we should be in the constant habit of remembering our relationship to the Lord and when we detect that we have fallen short, begin to deal with it. And then we, be, then we need to repent. The Lord goes on to say, repent and do the first works. Now we all know what repentance is. Repentance is to have a change of mind, a change of thinking. When you recognize you've been doing something wrong, uh, you you confess that, you repent of it, you turn away from it, uh, and you turn back to the Lord. So we turn from that condition we find ourselves in, we get back to where we once were. So that involves a recognition of the sin, the wrongdoing, and then a turning away from it. 
For the Ephesians, it was their lost devotion to the Lord, getting back to the place where that first love, that preeminent love, was manifested in their lives. And then we repeat what we once used to do. Do the first works. Get back to where you were when your good works were motivated properly by your love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider, first of all, what your good works were, and then ask yourself, well, why do I do these things? What is my motivation? What is the factor that is preeminent in my my life that um, makes me perform in this way? It ought to be our devotion to Christ. Then the Lord Jesus gives us a reminder, a rather stern reminder, if you will. He goes on to say, Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Well, what does the Lord mean by this? It is true that a few centuries later, Ephesus as a city became nearly extinct. Most of the places where these ancient churches were located are gone as well. And modern-day Turkey, well, the religion there is Islam, and the light of Christianity is very dim. But does that mean that the Lord is going to come back and, and uh, uh, take us out, so to speak. Well, it may have that connotation, but I think the idea of the truth that the Lord is coming is what ought to motivate us. He is coming, and when he comes, what is he going to find? Uh, it's a reminder to us that he's coming for his church, and when he does come, uh, we are going to face him in judgment for our works, our character, our way of life. Is he going to find us working and laboring from the proper motivation? Is he going to find us living pure lives and persevering to the end no matter what happens? Will he find us serving out of a fervent love for him or just a dead orthodoxy? So these are very sobering questions because he could come at any moment. And what will he find? The Lord Jesus then closes with a consolation, as he does to all the churches. And we find that in the last verse, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So that's an exhortation to listen to what the Spirit is saying. Another reminder that these are inspired words. Jesus is the author of this message. It's being conveyed to John uh, through the Holy Spirit of God. It's not my word this morning that's being preached, but the Lord's word. So since that's the case, we had better listen to it. And when the Bible says you need to hear something, it means you have the capacity of understanding it and obeying it. And that's our responsibility. Then he encourages this church and its overcomers that they will participate in the fruit of eternal life with God. He says in verse 7, To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. 
Now, we need to understand that when he uses that term, overcomer, he's not using it to explain a special group of Christians who have uh, surpassed everyone else, and they're overcomers, and nobody else is. No, I think this is just an expression of those who do persevere, those who labor, those who are fervent for Christ. And there are times when we all are characterized this way, And I don't think he means overcomers in the sense that this is just a special group of Christians who are going to have their own special place in heaven. I think he's referring to all of us. Because all of us who truly believe will persevere, we will overcome, maybe not perfectly, but that's where we're headed. And we're going to all participate in eating from the tree of life, which was once located in the Garden of Eden. And Adam and Eve were forbidden from it because they sinned and they were cast out of that garden. But uh, it's going to be in heaven. We see it again in Revelation chapter 22. And we're going to be eating from that fruit when we're in the eternal kingdom. And it's located in what is called the paradise of God. And again, the word paradise here is only mentioned a couple times in Scripture. It's actually borrowed from the Persian. And what it did was describe a garden of pleasure filled with wild animals and beautiful trees and plants and a a place that was built for kings. And so what, what it becomes is a symbol of the eternal dwelling place of God where all the Lord's people will be forever. So as we come before the Lord's table this morning, let's remember that Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, is assessing our walk with him. He's in our midst. What our church is like is reflected by what we, its people, are like. In comparison to Ephesus, what does the Lord see? Does he see a productive church? Let's be honest. There's just a few adults in this church who carry the greatest burden of ministry. Teaching, preaching, music, hosting prayer meetings, cleaning, and other duties. The Lord knows this, so what's he see in the rest? Does he see a pure church? Well, yes, we preach the true doctrine of Christ. We can detect false teaching. But are you concerned with pure living that results from pure doctrine? The two always go together in Scripture. Has the Lord laid his finger on some area of your life that needs to change? And are you willing to repent and come back to the right place? Does he see a persevering church? Are we persevering in the faith, trusting the Lord to help us endure the difficulties of life? Are we witnessing to others about their need of salvation despite little results? Will we continue to stand as the church becomes more and more marginalized in the world in which we live? Finally, have you left your primary love for Christ Are there other things that are more important to you? Are there other involvements that 
Really, you labor in more than you do the things of God? Are you as fervent now as at other times in your life? If you lost a sense of devotion for the Lord and his work, then what are you going to do about it? There is no better time than the present as we come before the table of his communion. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would use your scripture this morning to assess our own hearts. Help us, Lord, to realize that we as individuals make up the church here, your body. And we are reflecting in our life whether that church is commendable in your sight or not. We pray, Lord, you will forgive us where we fail you. We pray, Lord, you bring us back to the place of first love if it's necessary. And Lord, to do whatever else you need to do in our hearts to make our church what you want it to be. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.